Each generation, through its trials and its triumphs, valleys and plateaus, provides a trove of lessons for the generations that follow them. The fight for equity is endless, always requiring us to innovate and preserve simultaneously. We advance by building on the work of those who've gone before us, and many of them are still among us to put us on game. Gen Activist is an intergenerational podcast presented by Rosa Rebellion, a platform for creative activism by and for women of color. We are setting a table for intergenerational dialogue and collective disruption. Imagine it as a historical digital archive remastered for contemporary use and permanent preservation. These are our stories told by us for us. So get hyped for your co-hosts. Rosa Rebellion co-founders Virginia Cumberbatch, myself, Megan Harding, and the matriarch of Virginia's maternal family and the anchor of this podcast, someone we affectionately call G-Mom, Dr. Sylvia Russo. Gen activist, yeah, 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 yeah. Welcome to another episode of the Gen Activist Podcast. We are super excited to have with us today a photographer and geographer, McKaylee Oliver. We are going to be talking to her about the historic and contemporary reality of indigenous communities in the United States, as well as talking about the power of creative activism. Check it out. Hope you enjoy. Hey, y'all. Super excited for another opportunity for us to engage in these important conversations around not only creative activism, but the work that comes with co-laboring and collaborating to dismantle systemic oppression and injustice. And we recognize that there is an incredible work to be done collectively amongst women of color. Then there are also new nuanced histories, nuanced stories that each of our communities face. And so we're really excited to be in dialogue today with McKaylee Oliver, who is an incredible photographer, geographer, and descendant of the Nitsitapi people, which translates to Blackfeet. And we'll hopefully dive into a little bit of the relationship with colonized language and how that impacts how we see one another and how our stories are elevated. She is based out of the Cheyenne uh, traditional territories known today as Denver, Colorado. And she looks for loud and beautiful voices from all over, both human and more than humans, using her light box to paint a story. When she picks up her camera, she wields it with compassion and consent, understanding that the stories of who we are and the images that come with are extremely personal. With explicit permission and reciprocity, she captures frozen moments of expression, both in one's face and in the world. Her vocation is to share photos that cultivate a mentality and inclusivity, placing a particular focus on diversity in all of our spaces. Light is her art form, and it is a way that she represents voices that are often unheard or overlooked. She's an advocate for places first and a photographer second. She is also the owner of Loudmouth Visuals. So we are so excited to welcome you to this space and conversation, like we like to say, our virtual living room, McKaylee. And I just love the language that you even use to describe what you do. Certain language or pieces of your conversation that you invoke that I picked up on is this idea of permission and reciprocity. I think that's so powerful that even in our artwork, even in this work, there has to be a reciprocity in how we engage with stories. That it's not just you as the artist painting this picture, but instead you're telling a story collaboratively. And something that kind of piqued my interest, I was listening to this other podcast, because even though we have our own podcast, we are constantly inspired by others. Um, and it's called All My Relations. 
Nations. Um, and it's actually a story that is, or podcast that is developed by these two incredible women. And they talked about the invisibility particularly around Indigenous people um, and how so much of the artwork that has been documented around the Indigenous experience in the Americas was sort of from the white gaze, right? This idea of sort of caricature and painting stories without the agency of the the folks that were a part of the art or part of the photography. And so I would love for you to just kind of start off by telling us a little bit about you, how you got into this work, and how you've shifted your own practices of photography to make sure that there's agency and there's a voice around the people that you connect to. Yeah. Wow. I love that that's one of the first things that you noticed in my in my bio and in my description of my work. But I guess first off, thank you guys so much for having me. And I think part of the reason, you know, picking the background of Indigenous peoples, especially when it comes to art, when it comes to photography, um, when it comes to the history of extraction, not only of just our resources from our lands, but also from the extraction of knowledge and of Indigenous faces, of Indigenous bodies, um, of Indigenous artwork in general, and, and even to culture. And so I think that when it comes to me and my photography, I, I have taken all of that into account, thinking about the ways in which like my ancestors and other Indigenous ancestors have been used and abused when it comes to art forms, when it comes to the, the desire to take our culture and exotify it and romanticize it and then oppress our people. And so when I approach photos, and I think my approach also comes from, I studied journalism for a semester in school. And I felt kind of icky when I was doing journalism because um, although I wasn't focusing on photojournalism itself, I was I was still focusing on journalism and this extraction essentially of of knowledge and and of of story. I felt and so then when I went into photography, when I picked up my camera for the first time, I wanted to be the exact opposite of an extraction based photojournalist where you go into a setting and you take these photos and oftentimes permission isn't asked for and consent isn't asked for. And because of that history of not only my people, I decided to completely sway away from photojournalism, even though I do believe photojournalism can be extremely important in a lot of cases. And so that's why my photography has been very consent and permission based. And when I, when I take photos, it's even while I'm while I'm taking the photos, um, I often tell the folks that I'm collaborating with, uh, if you look at this photo afterwards and don't like it, you know, at any point in the process, you can say, you know, absolutely not. I don't, I don't want this photo to be used. And so I, I, that's completely informed by, you know, the history of Indigenous peoples. And there's been photographers throughout time. I can't remember the name of a, a particularly famous photographer who would not only just like extract Indigenous, like, settings and peoples and culture, but he would also fabricate it and, and put not even like native people in these photos. And, and, and so seeing those types of photos too, I think it's also really important for me that my photos have some sort of use or, or reason or story that's paired with it, that, that has meaning. And that's kind of where the reciprocity comes from. You know, I'm taking a photo and within my, my picture, I want there to be some type of reciprocal relationship between me and then the person I'm collaborating with behind my behind my screen. Yeah, the name the name of the photographer is Edward Curtis. I don't know if that answered yours question. <laughs> no, it did. It brought up like a lot of really, you know, good points, a lot of things that 
as a black woman in this country that I can relate to, you know, the extraction of not just land, which we know that land was stolen um, from black people and indigenous people, but that, you know, that our intellectual capital, that our creativity, that all of the contributions that we have, you know, made to the world is not only often, you know, extracted, but it's, it's also like celebrated, which I think you mentioned, but, but then there's not due credit or due compensation or do anything, you know, to when we talk about equity, right, for our people. And so I know, I know this, a lot of it, you know, resonated with me. And I think it's really wonderful that you have so much intention behind the work that you do, you know, and that that, you know, really special, I think, especially in like this world where like, Literally, everyone's just taking photos all the time <laughs> on their phones and documenting people's experiences with with no permission and oftentimes with you know malicious motives. And speaking in that vein, you've been doing this a while. Is that correct? The photography focused on indigenous people. Is that correct? No, I, I actually haven't been doing photography for that long. I've been around cameras for a while. My dad mm-hmm. is really excited about um, like recording things and he had like a Sony video camera growing up. And so uh, he recorded our lives along the way. But that being said, I, I didn't get an actual um, digital camera. Um, I shot it a little bit on film growing up, but I didn't get a digital camera until uh, almost exactly two years ago. Mm-hmm. So I've been really That's telling great. stories to, for two years now. So with that in mind, and, and not misappropriating people's images, which I think is highly important, images are so important, and how we convey them. Are there, in this mutually respectful way that you're doing it, have you seen any themes emerge that strike you, or that help you think about your work that might be you know, useful for others in understanding the stories of people. So are there any kind of themes that have emerged from your work? Yeah, I think, you know, there's been a few different themes, but in specific regard to consent and reciprocity, I think one of the main themes I've noticed is, um, or at least something that has been really apparent to me personally has been there, there really can be no assumptions on um, how someone wants to be represented, the way in which someone wants their story to be told, or even really the background of someone's story. Even when I'm working with Indigenous peoples, every single story that I have like worked with or person that I've worked with has a completely unique culture. You know, Indigenous peoples, each and every one of our stories is, is very different. And we all are in these uh, beautiful and wonderful communities. And yet, even individually, we have different stories and unique paths, whether or not we have grown up on the reservation and we're connected to our culture, or we were more urban natives and um, were disconnected and had to figure out how to reclaim or make our way back. And so I think one theme that I've noticed is, yeah, just no assumptions. And I, and I, and I try not to make any assumptions when I am taking photos. And then, yeah, just acknowledgement of the uniqueness of each and every individual, whether or not I'm taking photos of all indigenous peoples or, you know, black indigenous people of color um, of all sorts. I'd like to hear more about the black indigenous people of color. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I actually, um, that acronym I've been thinking about a lot because um, people have been using BIPOC a lot um, to talk about this, like, you know, this kind of collective group of um, uniting like 
people of color in general. But I actually heard somewhere that uh, Black, Indigenous, people of color is a specific demographic of human beings, which I find to be really fascinating how, you know, things continually are co-opted in our society. Something important, I think, to acknowledge. Yeah, and, and then within Indigenous communities, you know, during the the movement, the recent movement with Black Lives Matter um, after the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, I think uh, for me, I did a lot of thinking about um, the ways in which like anti-Blackness are represented in my own communities. And I think that that has been uh, really instrumental and informed by a lot of my friends who sit in both identities of Black and Indigenous. There's a lot of racism within Indigenous communities towards mm-hmm. Black folks and vice versa. Um, I remember having to have some some tough conversations with some of my Black friends in college about, you know, no, you can't call me Pocahontas. I don't appreciate that. <laughs> and those kind of things where it's just a conversation you need to have, but there's also these inherent biases, even when, when it comes to like uniting as diverse peoples together. And, you know, it's been vice versa where there's anti-Blackness in Indigenous communities and we have to have those conversations. I remember talking to my dad for the first time about um, Black Lives Matter and, and, and police violence specifically. And my dad didn't really understand the, the histories of why defunding the police is, is necessarily an extremely important movement. And to him, he he had only had experiences with police that were, I mean, police aren't aren't particularly awesome to him being a brown man, but he's never had that same level of fear. And and I remember having these conversations to him. I was like, Dad, you know, just in the same way that, you know, police aren't necessarily effective in indigenous communities, like they're the exact opposite in black communities, they are like crazy created for the control of black bodies, which has always been like a really uh, interesting thing for me to come into and learn and, and definitely informs like a lot of, a lot of uh, these conversations when it comes to talking to black indigenous uh, people of color specifically, and, and those folks that, that live in both, in both identities. Yeah, we really love, you know, anytime the thing is named, right? So anti-Blackness in other communities of color is a real issue, right? Like it's it's a real um, thing that plagues us and it, it often prohibits us from actually working in tandem and having a collective effort. And so, you know, you talked about kind of some unlearning around anti-Blackness and some tough conversations, which we love. We always talk about, you know, how you have to lean into discomfort because that's that's where the growth happens and how oftentimes, you know, people don't want to like pay that cost, especially in their families. Like no one wants like a holiday to be awkward because, you know, someone said something, but you have to like respond to it. And that's kind of part of the work of coagitation. And so, I would love to hear your thoughts on like, what do you think people need to unlearn about indigenous people and about um, the history of this country with extracting land and extracting resources and oppressing indigenous people all the way up to our contemporary reality? Because a lot of times people think, oh, all that stuff is over and that's in the past, but we know that it's not. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think there's a there's a, there's a ton of different things that you know I could I could say are the most important to to learn or unlearn about Native people. And I think one of the main ones, you know, I always I always talk to my friends within diverse spaces uh, when co-agitating or or collaborating together in in this work of advocacy. And I always explain, you know, one of the first quote unquote battles um, that we as Indigenous people are fighting 
is the simple idea that we're still here. And I think that, you know, I, I was in college for four years and I read constant past tense verbiage of indigenous peoples. You know, they were once here, they were once doing this. Um, these lands were the lands, you know, and, and that past tense kind of ideology of indigenous peoples really erases us as contemporary human beings. And also to this exotification of us as, as these peoples that, you know, have this very specific like connection with the land and all these things. And yes, like we do have this, Disney. this important Thank connection. Disney, for <laughs> Disney <laughs> has, has done a lot of damage there. Yeah, no, exactly. Like, I mean, just thinking about Pocahontas, I mentioned Pocahontas earlier and, and that whole concept of, of, uh, oh, you know, this is, this is exactly how an indigenous person looks and this is the stereotype and this is exactly their connection to the land and all indigenous peoples and native Americans are the specific type of person and unlearning that and kind of realizing that like we as indigenous peoples, not only do we look drastically differently from culture to culture, but our each one of our cultures is very unique. And we also are contemporary human beings who've adapted and, and, and lived with the times. And, you know, we, we have iPhones and, you know, we're not just these like past tense peoples who, you know, live and thrive off the land. Like we've had to adapt to the times and to this contemporary world. And, and I think, yeah, like the other, the other unlearning and, and kind of educational tool is, or education that I, that I often discuss a lot is that, um, indigenous peoples are the only ethnic group that you have to prove who you are. So something that I deal with a lot personally is this idea of, of blood quantum and this proof of, of who I am as an indigenous person. And um, blood quantum basically means that um, it's it derives from this colonial construct of, you know, eventually our blood quantums as indigenous peoples, blood quantum meaning like the percentage of blood in our bodies that is native, eventually it will be eradicated out. And so we will no longer be native people if there's these systems sets up, set up in each individual tribal nation that basically like squashes our, you know, our tribal blood to the point where we're no longer able to register as a member of our tribe. And it's interesting because being indigenous isn't something that you can prove with a genetic test. It's not something that you can prove with your blood quantum. And yet these tribes are set up in order so that we have to prove it. And still to this day, the histories of that is, you know, they're, they're still really inherent. And that's why I use the language descendant of the Blackfeet people. And I'm Omskapi Pakani Blackfeet, which is the direct region where, where my ancestors are from. And the reason why I say descendant is because I'm not a member of my tribe. My, my grandfather on my dad's side was not given a blood quantum card, meaning that, you know, he was... He was not like registered within the tribe. And so it's tough for me to trace back that ancestry. It becomes really muddled in colonization and, and indigenous peoples are the only ethnic group that have, have to prove. And it's in direct contrast actually to, to blackness and the 1% rule. And I always find that to be like a really interesting piece of education that um, not a lot of folks really know about. What you are surfacing and uh, giving voice to, I think is such a critical piece of um, understanding the work we still have to do to dismantle the ways that oppression shows up, right? To give voice to the fact that our historical travesties are still a part of our current realities. So this idea that by virtue of policies and promises by this country that were never fulfilled, we have this ongoing disruption to people's connection and, and place within their own cultural identities, right? The idea that they weren't given a piece of paper, right? And therefore now there is this disconnect 
with perhaps what tribe they would be part of. And so it even changes our language about how we get to see ourselves and consider ourselves. I'm a descendant of whether I am a part of this tribe. And so it's, I think it really becomes visceral how powerful the ongoing impacts and consequences of colonialization, the ongoing impacts and consequences of white supremacy, which in some ways is a theft of our cultural values and a theft of our cultural connection. You know, you equated it to the Black experience and the one drop rule. And this idea of proving yourself in communities, I think that's how we, we often talk about systemic oppression, but there's also an internalized oppression that happens, right? This idea of how do I, how I demonstrate the merit that I am indigenous enough, black enough, Latinx enough, Asian enough, and then the pressure to adapt or assimilate into certain communities because we believe our livelihood is dependent on it, or we won't be considered a, a quality artist without it, or housing access, whatever it might be. And so I think there's this powerful di um, dynamic between um, the ways in which the extraction of culture, the extraction of language is also connected to how we perceive ourselves in this current reality um, and this reclamation that needs to happen in some ways. And so I'd be really interested for you to kind of talk us through your journey, your personal navigation of why photography, why storytelling as a way of reclamation and as a way of connection. Um, I know you spoke a little bit about that through journalism school, but what in the last two years changed for you um, that photography became that lens? And can you add to that in terms of your personal, how that has affected you that is having to prove and what type of acceptance that gives you or rejection it gives you and where you see yourself, as John Henry Clark always said, where you see yourself on the map of human geography. As a human geographer, I appreciate that. <laughs> but yeah, I it's tough because, you know, I always in, in, in to, to your question, Sylvia, I I've never been native enough for the native community in a lot of ways. And I've never been white enough for the white community. You know, I'm always, what are you? I'm something else. I'm I'm neither or and and also too, you know, I'm not only just indigenous, I am I am also Irish and Italian and I've never been Irish enough for the Irish people or my Irish ancestors um, or family members and I've never been Italian enough for the Italian folks. And so, you know, I'm always just kind of in this like limbo state and I always call it like the island of misfits. And that has directly informed who I take photos of, you know, the people that I come in contact with, um, my friends, my community, you know, the, the friends that have become family and the folks that I have uh, felt comfortable enough with to tell their stories have all been on this island of misfits. Folks that you know, are, are just like me. They are, they are mixed kids. They come from a background of like Irish and indigenous or whatever it is. They come from this mixed kind of background. And I think that to me, being mixed is a reflection of the United States. And as we call it in, um, in my community, Turtle Island. And I think that to me, because of my personal identity, I'm I am, you know, attracted is a weird word, but I am attracted to these stories. Um, and in addition to that, you know, 
what informs me as a storyteller and me as a photographer is the fact that, you know, I have, a, I have grown up with an immense amount of, you know, white passing privilege in particular, because I am this like ethnically ambiguous person. People don't often assume immediately that I am a woman of color. Um, they always ask me like what I am. I actually often get um, asked if I'm Brazilian. That's like the number one thing people think I am. And, and so from there, I'm just always something else, something not quite white, but not necessarily have I received an immense amount of oppression or racism in my, in my personal, in my personal body because of, because of that white passing privilege. And, you know, growing up like my family, um, because of our proximity to whiteness, we have grown up with not a crazy amount of wealth, but enough wealth that when I turned to, I think it was 21, I was able to buy a camera and justify buying a camera. And, you know, I got, I had four years of college where I studied geography and a little bit of journalism and um, environmental biology. And I was able to um, take my education and, and use it for advocacy for indigenous peoples. And that in itself is why I am in my person, a storyteller and why I don't feel, I love telling my story and I, and I love connecting with my personal story, but I also don't believe my story should be the center of attention because of, because of that proximity to whiteness and, and the importance I feel to tell, to tell stories of, of indigenous joy and truth and, and truth coming from this, this perspective of, of being mixed. And, and I think my decentering of my own story maybe is something I need to unlearn and unpack later. But as I was saying that, I started to realize that that's maybe kind of a colonial construct. But but I think that's that's what informs being specifically a storyteller for right now is decentering um, this white narrative and and my care for doing so. Yeah, I think it's interesting. You know, when you talk about decentering your your own story, because. I think that our personal stories are so important, right? Like they inform how we move through through the world. Um, I think, you know, your background being Italian and Irish and indigenous, you know, has greatly informed how you have chosen to do this work um, and why you do it in the way that you do. And then I can see that there's like a tension there, you know? And so, you know, what is that tension that you feel, uh, I guess, between your identities and how are you reconciling it if you are still reconciling it as I would imagine it's a journey or how have you you know reconciled it yeah I think that you know it's been a journey because I think right when I started um, getting more of public attention I guess is the best way to say it or um, you know just people were noticing my photos or um, I was getting a platform to tell stories more um, I clung on to really hard this identity that I have as an indigenous woman. Um, and then, you know, through some, some unlearning and some relearning, I realized that it's really important for me to tell the whole truth of my story as a, as a person with also European background, because, you know, that, that comes with its own set of privileges and, and that like kind of perspective that I have in, in its, in itself is I think really, it's a really truthful story of what it means to be indigenous in this country and a really truthful story of, of just kind of like the history of this world and, and the way in which that colonization has specifically resulted in the United States. And, and so I've, I've had to, to get back to and talk more about being mixed. I'm sorry, how are the indigenous people responding to your work as a person presumably white claiming your indigenous ancestry, uh, how are they responding to it? And the second question is, are they how do they respond to Blacks who have had have an indigenous uh, background and were particularly coming with slavery and all that period? 
where there was a great deal of, uh, so my husband's family has a lot of indigenous people in his background. And so how is the indigenous community responding to you as a white woman and how do they respond to blacks who also claim indigenous heritage? Yeah, absolutely. I think it depends on who you talk to. You know, I think that in a lot of ways, like my community of indigenous peoples completely accepts and understands where I'm coming from and slash like they meet me and they know I'm indigenous. You know, I've never had, I've never hung out with an indigenous person or made relation with an indigenous person who has questioned who I am and where I'm coming from and my perspective and my experience as an indigenous woman. And when it comes to accepting the the background and the truth of black folks coming from indigenous backgrounds. To be honest, I'm not 100% positive the ways in which all native people, and I can't speak on behalf of all native people and their perception, Mm -hmm. but I work for Native Land um, Digital, which is an online mapping organization where we map indigenous peoples all around the world. And we've started specifically in Turtle Island, um, Canada, and the United States are the two places we have built out the most But um, actually today I spent a long time researching and reaching out to um, indigenous peoples from around Africa, because I think that that indigenous history is really important to be told. And I don't think that there is any, I would say, denial in indigenous communities of the indigeneity of Africans um, or any other black background indigenous peoples. Yeah. And I, I can't speak on behalf of everyone, but I do know that the acknowledgement of indigenous peoples from around the world is not something that Native Americans or Native peoples from Turtle Island deny. But the work that we have to do is among people of color and mm-hmm. somehow not being de- that work not being defined by the presence of white people. We have a lot of understanding to create among ourselves. And so When we talk about women of color, what does that mean to you personally? Well, I think it's something I've, I've, I've grappled with a lot, right? Because I think, you know, if you break it down to the direct words, like woman of color, right? You know, I, I see someone who is very clearly a woman of color and I look at myself and I think, okay, you know, I have this background. I'm never assumed to be white and yet I'm never directly assumed to be a woman of color. Um, and so for me, I think it's tough because I, I don't want to ever whiteify anyone. That's a word that I, I use a lot where I, I believe whiteness is not only just a privilege, but it's also a state of mind that one can be in. You know, I've met plenty of people of color who look like they're clearly a person of color and yet they have this this white frame of mind and this colonial con- like constructed brain space um, that's no fault of their own it's survival right it's it's surviving in the society that we live in this colonial society that we live in and so when reflecting on being a woman of color myself you know I, I still have a lot of learning to do when it comes to that to be to be perfectly honest I identify as a woman of color now and I've also gone back and forth because I do believe we need to talk about how indigenous peoples look differently mm-hmm. um, how being indigenous is not necessarily the color of your skin it's not reflected by the color of your skin and yet I do acknowledge that my proximity to whiteness gives me certain privileges in the society and, and so I've, I've I've bounced back and forth between mm-hmm. what necessarily it means to me I think being a woman of color is also a really uniting term a really a uh, thing that like brings us together and and I've and I've had chats and and hangouts and been a part of affinity spaces that are that are women of color affinity spaces where I come out of it feeling like 
oh my God, I'm, I'm not alone. Like I, these women know exactly where I'm coming from and have all these similar experiences and, you know, our, our like isolation, I think is, um, you know, been so ridiculously constructed and systematic. And once we come together, it makes me feel so whole and so not alone. And so it's tough because, you know, I, I want to be sensitive and acknowledging my privileges and also want to be united with women who come from similar backgrounds that I do and similar experiences that I have. Oki, Nixo Coax, Nitaniko, Michaeli Oliver, Nimotokto, Amskapi Pekani, Nitisapi. I just introduced myself in Blackfeet, my ancestral language. I am also Shawnee, Irish, and Italian. I think there's such power in that recognition, right? Part of the way that oppression functions is for those things invisible to remain such and those unconscious things. I think we oftentimes talk about our intentions, right? Our intentions versus what was unintentional. And I think there's something powerful about the journey around understanding who you are in proximity to the world and your community by acknowledging that even those things that are unconscious or unintentional can still be harmful. And so acknowledging that in your participation as as all of us as women of color who identify as women of color, it's also part of that journey is acknowledging the the harm of of privilege, the harm of of white supremacy and how even when it's not um, a part of our intentions, if we don't name it, right, it can still hold space. I, I love what you talk about in terms of the collective power of even the term of women of color. It's this unifying um, space because part of the function of racism has been to make us believe that we have to fend for ourselves, right? And that we're in competition with one another instead of creating spaces that are firm both our collective identity and our nuanced histories and our nuanced experiences. And I think about that even more so almost a week past the incredibly tragic um, events of Atlanta and the killing of um, six Asian Americans. And I think about that in terms of my own relationship to equipping myself around the stories of indigenous people. And I think there's sometimes also this tension about as storytellers, the stories we tell of, hey, oppression and trauma and harm are still prevalent and we need to tell those stories and make them visible. But one of the words you used earlier that is such a strong value for us at Rose Rebellion was joy. And so I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about your work as, yes, naming those things to still be true that are still disruptions to equity and justice, but also the power in being a documenter of our joy and our resiliency as people of color and specifically as indigenous people. Yeah, I think something I, I've been, like a phrase I've been using a lot is joy and truth. And it's balancing the two, right? Um, because you know you can't tell a truthful story of an indigenous person in the United States right now without telling the story of colonization and oppression and the impacts that that have had on us and our ancestors. Um, you know, I talked earlier about um, how most of the indigenous peoples that I that I tell stories 
um, with is they're, they're these like more misfit indigenous peoples, right? These, these indigenous peoples come from mixed backgrounds um, who are still reclaiming, who are figuring it out, you know, who are completely entranced in their culture, but are, you know, a skier or something. And that's not necessarily a common thing within their community. And and so although I want to tell these truthful stories and, and talk about oppression, I also think that uh, oppression and colonization has been has been talked about enough. And, and yes, those need to still be in our narratives. And yet those representations of, of our joy and the resistance of our joy are not as common. And I often see all these you know, the, the word that's been popularized is poverty porn documentaries of, of indigenous peoples and, you know, how horrible, you know, our lives are and, and, you know, how, how unfortunate reservations are and all of these things. And yet, like, I go on reservations and I see joy everywhere. I see resilience. I see a totally different lens. Um, I don't see oppression. I don't see, you know, these, these horrible, like, things that are commonly put in um, about how awful poverty is and how, you know, sad indigenous peoples are. It's, um, you know, I see resilience and resistance and I see um, indigenous peoples, you know, maybe growing up um, on the reservation and looking at the mountain right next to the reservation saying, man, I want to climb that, you know, I, I, I really want to climb that and, and finding that joy for, for oneself. And, and so when it comes to like my kind of, cause I, I do center outdoor recreation world in my work a lot. Um, I take a lot of photos of skiing and mountain biking and, and rock climbing. Um, and part of the reason that I do that is because it's indigenous joy on the land. And to me, that's the biggest form of resistance. Um, because if you look at the history of uh, where indigenous peoples have been put, systematically reservations are usually on uh pieces of land that are you know not necessarily the most incredible pieces of land um they've still created relationship and and really learned to love these lands but they're not necessarily the most incredible i guess i would say like uh fertile or like beautiful spaces and in addition to that um other indigenous peoples were removed and put into into urban spaces in the cities and so systematically removed from supposedly finding joy on the land and that act to me is seen as a really clear representation of the ways in which indigenous peoples can um, contemporarily uh, find new types of ceremony and, and reclaim something that, that colonial society has tried to take away, which is this joy, which is this, this act of um, finding passion, finding ceremony, finding all of these different things on the land. And um, that's part of the reason that I center joy and truth, because then on the other aspect of that, um, you know, talking about the history of colonization and the ways in which um, those have manifested within each individual person's family and community um, would also be not truthful. Not talking about that would be not truthful. Um, and so while I center joy, I also like to add in truth because those are also stories that are really important to be told as well. And so, you know, storytelling is a huge value um, of Rose Rebellion is the work that we do, everything that we do. Um, it's storytelling is a part of it, um, both, you know, personally for me in Virginia, also in our work. And then really G-Mom has done a lot of our thing right now. She's, she's writing kind of her family history um, because we recognize the importance of telling our own stories as they have been co-opted so often. Um, and also documenting our stories before, you, you know, they are no longer with us. Right. And so I guess, you know, just as a kind of final thought or a final question, 
like what story? And I know you're only two years in, so you might be like, I don't know, I'm developing it. But, you know, what stories do you hope, you know, you tell with your photography, you know, when all is said and done and, and you have this great body of work, um, which is growing, you know, what story do you hope you would have told? I want people to know they're not alone in this world. I think that's something that whatever stories I center, whatever stories I tell by the end of my days, I want people to look at my body of work and say, wow, whoever I am, wherever I come from, I don't feel alone when I hear these stories, when I look at these, these pictures, when I am, when I am, yeah, like listening to these stories. And so I think that for me, like being someone who has so often felt alone in my experience and then coming to the realization that I am exactly the opposite of alone in my experience, I don't want a a little girl or little boy or, or any human being to grow up with that same feeling of, um, I'm the only one who's experienced this. And, you know, I, I want people to look in the media, to, um, look in books and magazines and, and movies and whatever else it is and see a representation of themselves within that, within that space. And I love the term that representation matters because, you know, it absolutely does matter. And, you know, if we don't have, an idea of, of who we are within mainstream media and a, and a representation of ourselves within mainstream media, um, then we're going to grow up feeling isolated and alone. And, you know, we've, we've talked about some of the connections of our, of our diverse communities. And that is one of the ones that I think is very stark is this kind of like forceful of individuality within each of our which in each of our communities and realizing that like not only are our communities like very similar and have similar experiences and can be united but that we as like BIPOC are not alone in this work and um, not alone in this world. And we don't need to live this like individual, like Western colonial lifestyle. We can be in community and, and, you know, maybe we don't fit into this, like, you know, maybe I don't fit into the native community or maybe I don't fit into the white community, but I fit into the misfits, right? I fit into the mixed kids, fit in with the mixed kids. And I think that is what I want people to see within my work. When I listen to you, I think a theme that comes forth from me is that elevation of the human spirit that you're that's it seems to me that's what you seek and what you your work is about is elevating the human spirit wherever it may be found and wherever we can come together and resist oppression that makes me really happy that's what you hear I uh just got goosebumps a little bit thinking about that because yeah that's a very eloquent way of putting exactly what I'm trying to do here is, is yeah, represent the human spirit and the ways in which we are not just oppression and the ways in which we are, are, and I love this quote too, our ancestors' wildest dreams. For sure. (laughs) For sure. Our ancestors' wildest dreams. And we, you know, certainly center as much as we can, you know, joy and understanding that like so much of uh, being a person of color in this country is is just the ability to find joy in the midst of it all, right? And to really work to cultivate that within um, our families. I think it's our superpower. I think it's remarkable. I totally agree. <laughs> yeah, in indigenous communities, I always joke like one of our core values is humor. You know, I spend half the time like making jokes with my indigenous friends, or like I have mentors who will send me like just hilarious things that 
that, yeah, it's like the superpower of being able to almost poke fun at these horrible things and find like joy and resistance in that, in that laughter and that, in that humor, which is, uh, yeah, native people are funny. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) exchange, Exchange some things, you know, now I've come to like watch a bunch of stuff with like black Twitter because black Twitter is so funny. And also the speed at which people um put out memes is is amazing so and so it it, it's it's become you know kind of therapy for me and one of the ways that I cultivate joy in my own world yeah I always I always talk about how um social media is kind of this like uh uniting tool that um the colonizers never thought that we would get you know like instagram has so many awful horrible things and yet like i have met so many incredible indigenous peoples that there's no way i would have met them with anything else but social media i mean like one of my best friends denali their name is and they live up in alaska and um are indigenous to alaska and i would have never in a million years been able to meet them uh without instagram And I think that's just like such a fascinating thing to think about too, is that, you know, this, this thing that is such a double-edged sword, right? Yeah. So awful. Instagram can be so horrible. And yet like, it's also the tool the colonizers never expected us to get was this like literal like box that we can just, you know, rally and unite and, and advocate for each other. Absolutely. I think it's interesting if we go back to sort of the concept and the importance of land, right? We've talked about land throughout today, land that's been extracted, that's been stolen, that's been co-opted, right? And even the practice of like reclaiming land. And we think about sort of the digital landscape of Twitter and Instagram. And um, it's such a bold way in which I feel like we have unified, but also resisted, right? It has been such a tool of resistance, you know, that Hashtags were never meant to be a rallying cry for the brutalization of black and brown bodies, but that's exactly what it's been, right? And that, and finding someone that you connect with, you know, in a way that you can now show up in that city and co-labor and co-agitate together, I don't think was the original intent of Instagram, but it has. And then those moments where it feels like it's too much, like those moments where you are just triggered and traumatized by the world, it also serves in some ways as this reprieve and this rest and this momentary joy. You know, we were laughing on another episode that in the midst of, or in the aftermath of a whole insurrection, um, you know, that we could fault, you know, be sharing in our group text, you know, memes about what it would look like for us now to, you know, take back power, you know, on the moment of inauguration. And so I think, That's the beauty of our communities and the beauty of our stories, that they're not one dimensional, that we can hold pain and we can hold joy. We can hold exhaustion, but we can also find places of rest. And so we're just so excited to be connected to your work and so grateful for your voice and the way it shows up in this world. Thank you. Yeah, I uh, I can't give you enough snaps for <laughs> for all the things you just said. I I think something I'll take away from this conversation is co labor and cogitation. I don't think those are words I've used before, and I absolutely appreciate them. And it's definitely just like helped me to uh, click together a lot of the puzzle pieces in my head of the work that I've been doing in a lot of ways. Um, you know, a lot of my best friends are from completely different communities than, than me. And tra- we've been trying to figure out what our collaboration is and it's, mm-hmm. it's agitation. And I, and I just love that language. So I'm thrilled to be connected to, to you three as well. Well, you just gave us a bunch of words to add to our lexicon today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Megan and I are like writing things down in the chat and in text. So thank yeah. you. 
Yeah, sometimes okay. I, I feel like I just have like a whole library in my head of all of these words I've only learned in the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. And I'll say a whole sentence of words that I feel like I've only known for maybe a year now. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it is only them now. <laughs> there, there is language to the movement. And I think there's historical language to it. And then there's contemporary language and it's always evolving and, and we're creating it, which, which is, you know, a privilege and an honor. So, so how has the uh, indigenous community responded to the nomination and now approval of Secretary of Interior, Deb Howard? Oh yeah, that's a, that's a good one. Um, I've heard a lot of mixed reviews. Um, first of all, I, I cried. I was um, overjoyed. You know, I truly never thought um, there would be an indigenous woman like in a position of power in our government, in the United States government. Um, and also at the same time, I think a lot of in- indigenous peoples are um, worried and um, afraid for Deb Holland, like within this system. Um, and so I think there's a lot of mixed emotions with it. Uh, but I also believe in optimism and I believe that uh, Deb Holland has an incredible head on her shoulders yeah. and mentality and community of people behind her. And, um, you know, I, I was seeing a couple Instagram lives and she's just one of the most humble politicians I've pretty much ever seen. Mm-hmm. Um, and I truly believe like her voice and like contribution um, of the indigenous perspective is uh, going to be instrumental. And then specifically like being secretary of interior um, and the history of, sec- of the, um, of the department of interior. It's so appropriate. It's lands like that in general is just, mm-hmm. I can't think of a more perfect position. Um, you know, if, if we have to participate in the United States government, um, I can't think of a more perfect position position for an indigenous person to be a part of. Um, and yeah, I do say that with uh, full acknowledgement that there are mixed emotions about it. Yeah. yeah I say that reminds me of, um, you know, when the Obamas, uh, were walking outside of their motorcade, so they had just done the inauguration they were doing the parade and they're walking outside of their motorcade and there's just these dual feelings of like intense pride like i literally laid on the floor and just mm-hmm. cried um but then also like get back in your car like it's not safe for you to be walking outside get back in the bulletproof car we still don't trust that That's you're right. going to be safe and so completely understand holding mm-hmm. both of those emotions but it is really really wonderful to have her um, serving in that position. And it really yeah. is, you know, like poetic justice a little bit. I don't know it, if you follow She the People. Um, they're an organization focused on sort of political agency and visibility of women of color. And they did this really cool video um, of Representative um, uh, Deb Holland putting on her full regalia at before the ceremony Um, and like her team had done a whole like TikTok about it but just like the power we talk about not just representation but again this reclaiming of space like she's taking up space and these halls that were never built for her that never were meant for her to ascend to that level of leadership and she's coming in her full authentic self right unapologetic Right. Yeah. This idea of like stripping down even what the expectation of her well, was of what she should be wearing right in that space. And it's just 
literal chills to think about that. So much power in that. And, um, you know, that's, I actually recently did like a, a image spread of like a bunch of different, um, collaborative images, not all my pictures, but I just kind of like put them together for this magazine called the Sisu magazine that Coalition Snow puts on. Um, and Coalition Snow is like a femme ski brand. And anyway, so this magazine, we put this, this like page together of all these different indigenous women, trans and non-binary femmes um, wearing uh, indigenous earrings or indigenous yeah. jewelry. And putting them all together just seemed like this, this radical act of resistance. Um, mm. And I saw that same thing uh, with Deb Holland. And it's, it seems like this simple kind of like, oh, we're putting out yeah. art, you know, like we're wearing it somehow. And, you know, mm. what is that going to really do? But you're right, it's taking up space and like oh, being this like full mm-hmm. frontal, I'm not the same as, as you guys are. And I come from a different background and a different yeah. system. Yeah. And like things are going to be different. And, and that's what I saw when I saw Deb Holland and all of her regalia and um, the ribbon skirt and, um, and even just to like being honest about like where, like who made the ribbon skirt. Like I recently read a news article about like who made the ribbon skirt and it's just like all these like really incredible, um, I don't know, not only just like full frontal, I'm native, like what you're going to do about it, but also, <laughs> also these, these like transparencies of where, where Deb Holland like got, um, got these pieces of, of culture from these, these art, these art pieces from, and I just find that to be refreshing within the political system. And she comes from something. <laughs> that's, oh yeah. That's yeah. The, I come from something. I'm honored by this, but I come from something. Yeah. 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 And I think that's, that is important to remember always. Mm-hmm. And that something didn't start the moment you gave me this title. That something yeah. started hundreds of years ago. Yeah, yeah, a millennium ago. And that's something like, you know, we always talk about, um, you know, I always, I always tell people about like, talk about my ancestors a lot. And, and, um, you know, sometimes I'll jokingly be like, oh, my ancestors are like talking to me today. And, you know, like, I'm, I'm thinking about doing this or, um, you know, I will smudge, which means to burn sage and kind of cleanse oneself. It's traditional in my culture. And, um, and when I, when I smudge, I'm like, oh, my ancestors are really proud of me right now, you know, and I kind of say those like simple things, but I think for me, it's this reminder of like, I come from a people's and I come from this. Come from something. Exactly. Um, and it's, it's something in like white culture, like culture, I say with extreme air quote, quotes, um, the, 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 there isn't this like emphasis on, uh, on like I come from yeah like I come from something and I come from a people's and I have ancestors you know I I don't hear a lot of white people talking about their ancestors and I just find that to be like such a shame uh because like we all no matter what kind of human being you are you come from a people's and um yeah maybe some of us have colonizers in our past and like that's a that's a people you come from and you need to learn about that as well but like before Mm -hmm. colonization you probably came from a culture of beautiful like indigenous peoples somewhere in your lineage We want to thank you for being here, everyone. You've been listening to the Gen Activist Podcast with McKaylee Oliver. We're so um, grateful to have had this wonderful conversation um, with you. And just take a moment and tell people where they can find you on the interwebs. Yeah, yeah. My website is loudmouthvisuals with an S dot com. Um, my Instagram is at mixtees. That's M-I-C-S-T-E-E-Z-E. It's a long story why it's that. And my other hat that I wear is I'm the research director for Native Land Digital, and that is native-land.ca. And that's a really good resource if you are trying to figure out whose native lands you are currently on. Oh, that's amazing. 
Yes, that's Thank amazing. You. Everyone go do that. Everyone <laughs> go do that. <laughs> We've learned a lot from you today. Thank you. Uh, thank you. I've learned a lot from you guys as well. <laughs> Check out these words of wisdom from G-Mom. I'm elated over an event of this past week when Representative Deb Holland was appointed Secretary of Interior. It was an appropriate tribute to the heritage that we all enjoy from our Indigenous people. But most of all, in that moment when she received the appointment and showed up in the dress, in the regalia, in the that represented her people, she brought history with her. And it was a history that said to America and to all of us, this is an honor, I am happy to receive it, but I want us to remind you that I didn't come alone. I came from something. I came from the richness of a culture that created me and prepared me for this position.